I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. In the history of popular culture, there's probably no group of people more documented than the Beatles. There are dozens of films, documentaries, TV shows, and countless biographies, photo collections, and books, not to mention the music itself. So imagine what it would feel like, as a Beatles fan, to be given hundreds of hours of never-before-heard audio recordings of Paul McCartney, talking in detail about every song he's ever written. Well, those recordings showed up on the doorstep of one very lucky team of podcast producers. McCartney, A Life in Lyrics is a new podcast from Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. And each episode is focused on one song from McCartney's career, from the early days all the way to the present. Justin Richmond is the executive producer, and he's here now to tell us more. Justin, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us how this project got started. Where did these recordings come from? So the recordings were the basis of the book, the lyrics, 1956 to present, which Paul McCartney worked on with um, esteemed poet Paul Muldoon. He's like one of the, also one of the great writers um, ever. Um, So those two sat down and started recording conversations that would become um, the book, the lyrics, 1956 to present. And that book is an analysis of over 150 songs of McCartney's. I think once my understanding is, and my 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 assumption is that once they got done with the book and that that deadline pressure was done, they realized like, wow, these recordings are like really special. Like it's really McCartney and a colleague or a friend sort of sitting down for these interviews, and sort of like he's not on. You know, he's not like the entertainer McCartney that he's been having to be for decades it's like much more casual affair and so i think what they realized is wow these are really special tapes we should do something in addition to the book with these people should hear these and so how many hours of tape are we talking about here i have never um actually counted but man it is it is in in some way it i didn't count because it just i already was daunting mm-hmm. and I, I i felt like by actually tallying the actual <laughs> hours i might feel worse just about run the, away yeah uh, the <laughs> uh, the producer in me i mean the beatle fan in me was like just like luxuriating in these tapes but then you know the producer in me was like oh my god this is um a lot to go through and a lot to live up to right they discussed over 150 songs of, of mccartney's you know and and what was going through your mind when you're sitting down and starting to listen through these recordings for the first time, recordings that not many people at this point have heard. Honestly, like I was just, I was gobsmacked. Like my first instinct was just to listen through to everything just as a fan of music and pop culture. I just need to hear everything that is said in these tapes, you know, like it almost felt like I was, you know, it, it, it's almost like um, 
being given tapes from a president or something like, you know, like mm-hmm. tapes that weren't supposed to be meant to be heard and you be able to listen in, like imagine that, like you're just like, wow, like I'm a fly on the wall for this thing that wasn't meant to be heard. Um, and I'm, I hope we preserved that to an extent also uh, for the listeners that will hear the podcast. So you have these recordings of Paul McCartney talking about 150 different songs. How do you narrow it all down to decide which songs to focus on? This was the interesting thing. So, I mean, they talked about 150 songs, but the book is about specifically lyrics, right? The book's called The Lyrics. In a book, you have the benefit of being sure that the reader has the lyrics printed right next to them, right on the page, so they can reference the lyrics as like sort of you're reading through the um, the transcript of the conversations and 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 learning more about the song. Our sort of hill to climb was that we couldn't ensure that the listener had the lyrics right next to them, right? So we tried to broaden the scope a bit. And what we realized was that in looking at each McCartney song, what you can do is you can actually, you can tag any given McCartney song almost to a point on his timeline. And so what we decided to do is because so much of his, really his biography and his life is in his lyrics and in his artistry is we decided to sort of tell the story of young McCartney and Beatles McCartney and Wings McCartney and like solo, you know, post Beatles and Wings McCartney and, and really plot each song to points on his timeline. So the way that we ended up narrowing it down from 150 to the 24 that we'll end up doing across two seasons is um, finding the songs that we felt told his story the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And how involved was he in the making of the podcast? Um, you know, I mean, the man is busy. So everything has been okayed by him. Mm. In, in, in other words, to say like he didn't want a product to go out that wasn't good. He was very like open. Like, you know, we got all of those tapes. There was nothing really off limits. It was just sort of like, wanting to make sure that this was the best possible representation of the tapes and of his life and of his artistry and of his lyrics and his songs. And and so, you know, he was involved as far as listening and just making sure everything was up to up to snuff. And how did it feel to know that Paul McCartney was was critiquing your work or listening to your work or going to give you notes? Terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I've had the experience before. I mean, you know, I've had the good fortune of working with talented people that I really, really respect, as do like a bunch of other people, like Malcolm Gladwell, fellow Canadian, what's up? Um, Rick Rubin, uh, you know, all kinds of people. But, you know, it's like when you think about it, it's like Paul McCartney invented fame, you know? Like yeah. the Beatles invented what it like. There's like, like all of pop culture is sort of pre and post Beatles, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it was terrifying, you know? But, you know, I, I after a while, we started to feel pretty confident in our work once we hit our stride, you know, and it became less. But I'm, I'm always aware that we're representing a person who's beloved. We're representing a person who is um, a giant of art and artistry, and we're also representing a human being. And so that part of it also terrified me. It's like mm-hmm. to be in charge of accurately telling someone's life story while also knowing that there's going to be hordes of fanatic fans who are critiquing everything. You know, it's just like, yeah, there's a lot to be <laughs> in your head about. But I think we landed at a good place, and I think these episodes are really delightful. And I think the, a Beatles fanatic will get just about as much out of it as someone who's 
just curious about the Beatles, you know? And I think even if you don't know the Beatles, but you're interested in art or you're interested in the history of pop culture, of, mm. uh, you know, after 1950, like if you're anything about, like there's no way to, there's no way to love pop culture and not have a firm understanding of what the Beatles have given to our culture, right? Like, I mean, pop culture is basically pre and post Beatles. So I think, you know, there's there's something in this for everyone. And and I think we landed, if I can say, uh, in a really good place. Well, I, I'm confident that this will be a award-winning and very popular podcast just from the amount of listeners you're going to get um, alone. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of it. And I thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Justin Richmond is the executive producer of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics from Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. And we're going to listen to some of the show now. But just to note before we do, as you might expect, this podcast contains a lot of music from the Beatles. But for boring and complicated copyright reasons that I won't get into, we can't play that version on the show. So Pushkin has very kindly provided us with a demusicked version of the podcast for you to hear. It's still good, but the full version is even better. So you should go check that out. Anyway, here's Paul McCartney explaining how he wrote the words to Eleanor Rigby. I had... Father McCartney, because it was the right syllables. And I remember playing him, and he said, that's great, Father McCartney. He loved it. I said, no, I'm really not comfortable with it, because it's my dad. Mm-hmm. And my father McCartney, mm-hmm. Father McCartney, it's me. You know, it's, it's not, I don't want to, I don't want to be that personal with this. So we literally got the phone book out and went on from McCartney, 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 McKenzie. That's good. And then we had him working, but his work was darning his socks because he was a sort of poor old vicar. Father McCartney didn't make it into the lyrics of Eleanor Rigby, but he did play an important role in Paul's musical upbringing. My dad had sat me down as a kid Mm -hmm. and taught me (laughs) and my brother the idea of harmony. Every brother sang in harmony, so me and my brother did... I once performed at a talent competition with my brother Mike when I was 11, <clears throat> and we sang Bye Bye Love. Didn't win. Obviously not talented enough for the Butlins crowd. My dad was self-taught, had learned, listened to things, and could play them. You know, I said, Dad, teach me piano like you play it. He said, no, son. He said, I can't play. I said, you can? Well, I can hear you. He said, no. I can't play properly. You've got to go and learn. So Paul McCartney went out to learn from a proper piano teacher. But he didn't find that kind of music lesson to be so stimulating. It just killed me. I couldn't do it. When you go... And you'd go... You go, I've heard better stuff than this on the radio. This is not great. But okay. I'm sure we have to start here. And then she said, homework. Go home and learn what a crotchet and a quaver and thing is and come back. So it was like, I've got homework from school. I don't need your homework. When Paul McCartney was 21 and the Beatles already gaining national popularity, he gave the piano lessons another go. 
and this was Royal Guildhall School of Music guy, and he tried, but by then I'd written Eleanor Rigby, and it, but he had to take me back to the five-finger exercise. Do, 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 do. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't do the show. I, I just didn't want to do it. Many of Paul's peers felt the same way about traditional musical training. Everyone in my generation, all of us groups, mm-hmm. John, George, Paul and Ringo, Mick, Charlie, Keith and so on, I don't think any of us can read music. And now I will teach a kid how to play the piano, how we learned it, and I will show them a couple of chords to get started on. And if they're musical, they're off. You get C, D minor, E minor, F, G, A minor, right there. That's like most of the Beatles songs. Right. That's more than you need to know. Which leads us back to Eleanor Rigby, a song that grew from a single chord. Din, 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 din. In its basic sense, it's just an E minor chord. Din, 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 din. And all the fun happens with my melody and the syncopation and the words. It's all against the four. George Martin, the Beatles producer, had introduced Paul to the idea of the string quartet on the song Yesterday. And I had resisted the idea at first, but when it worked... I fell in love with the idea. So I knew now that I wanted to do a similar thing with Eleanor Rigby. So I would go around to George's house. We'd arrange a little session. And I said to him, you know, I'm fascinated by Bach. Because I'd suddenly grasped that there was mathematics. I could see one, two, one, two. And then on top of that, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, one. Two now forming a sort of pyramid, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, sixteen stars. So I love this two, four, eight, sixteen thing. And I brought this idea and talked to George about this. And he said, Well, um, Bach, you know, would have done this. And he laid out the chords as he had done on yesterday. George talking about this later would say that he then became inspired by Bernard Herrmann, mm-hmm. who had written the psycho music. Right. Which is very dramatic. And he wanted to bring some of that into the arrangement. Alfred Hitchcock's 1960s classic about the sinister Bates Motel had been a huge box office success. In the movie, Anthony Perkins' character Mel's with his dead mother, and takes revenge on his desires. Together, they kill Janet Leigh in that famous shower scene. And it's Bernard Herrmann's stabbing violins that make that scene so iconic. While Elmer Rigby isn't a film, of course, McCartney says that writing the lyrics was like structuring a movie. Well, I was seeing it like a film, just in my own imagination. I've got two protagonists that are lonely. She and then him. He's not sort of... You don't feel so sorry for him, but he's lonely. So you've got these two... So all the lonely people now becomes the the chorus. 
Where do they belong? Where do they come from? And in the third verse, the characters are brought together. Died in the church. So we brought her back to her rice cleaning duties. And so one day she keels over in the church and was buried along with her name. So yeah, she dies and then he comes back. He's the one who buries her and he's wiping his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. And that's your sort of wrap up to the story. From Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia, that was McCartney, A Life in Lyrics. You heard Paul McCartney in conversation with poet Paul Muldoon. The NPR podcast Rough Translation tells stories from around the world that still hit close to home. Sadly, earlier this year, NPR announced that the show would be canceled, along with several others. But they're making their eighth and final season one to remember. It's called Love Commandos. That's the name of a volunteer organization in India that helps couples in love escape from arranged marriages. Running away from your family can have serious and even deadly consequences. So the Love Commandos help couples escape in secret and take them to safe houses and help them start a new life. In this clip, we're gonna meet a couple named Surya and Akanksha. They come from different castes, and Akanksha was afraid her family would kill her before allowing her to marry Surya. They managed to escape, but they had to leave everything they knew behind. So we're gonna pick up their story when they arrive at the Love Commando safe house in Delhi, where they meet one of the founders named Sachdev. Surya and Akanksha arrived in the shelter in September of 2018. And as they approached the end of the year, the shelter filled up with couples. Surya says at one point there were seven couples living here, along with Sachdev. We would gather around, we would play games, we would play Ludo. That's producer Raksha Kumar interpreting for Akanksha. There was never a boring moment at the shelter. We always had a lot of fun. There are holiday celebrations. This is from a video that Suri and Akanksha showed Lauren of a New Year's Eve party. Young people shoulder to shoulder, smiling, dancing with disposable cups in their hands. They look happy. And Akanksha told Lauren it wasn't just that life in the shelter could be lots of fun. Akanksha says it was her dream to marry the person she'd fallen in love with. And while her own father disapproved of that, here's an elder, Sachdev, not only honoring that, but encouraging her and placing her in this long tradition. Lord Shiva was Oghar, means scheduled cost of the day. Lower caste. Yeah. He's talking about, you know, the great intercaste marriages in Hinduism. Lord Shiva marrying uh, Lord Esparvati. It really helps a lot of young people to hear that one of the primary um, deities in Hinduism, Lord Shiva, uh, married out of caste. Everything these couples have heard before this, on the news, from their parents, 
is that love is a selfish act. And it, you know, it stops feeling, you know, like something that they've done uh, out of being selfish or an act that is um, primarily seen as too small uh, in their eyes now starts to have a, a big, large, beautiful meaning. Every couple that arrived in the shelter was told of certain rules that they would have to follow. One of those rules was that the love commandos would take away their phones. This is so GPS tracking doesn't give away their location. But also, as Sachdev told Lauren, is that in case one of them has a moment of regret or doubt or maybe longing for home comforts, they don't pick up the phone and call home. We tell them that until unless you are so strong that you can contour the emotion or financial power or whatever may be the reason, you should avoid Otherwise, emotional torture will start, and then that could be the result. He believes that the law just isn't doing a good enough job of protecting young people from their families. And he says he's been there. He's witnessed moments when the police have delivered a young person back to their family, closed the door, and they hear screams from the other side of the door, and the police walk away. Parents think that children are their properties. And so when couples come to the shelter, he warns them. Kindly don't use your own minds. And I think he means just put your safety in my hands and I promise you, you will stay safe. It's at this moment, when the shock of these couples' estrangement is just starting to register, that Sachdev will tell the story of Abdul Hakim, a young man who stayed at the shelter in its earliest years. Every single person that I've met who's come through the Love Commandos shelter has heard the cautionary tale of Abdul Hakim. It has been widely reported Abdul Hakim was killed because he had not gone on our advice. Abdul Hakim and his wife have a baby. First delivery of the child was in one of the shelters. And in some versions of this story that Sachdev tells, Abdul Hakim needs to go out to get medicine for the baby. They are going to doctor for getting medicine for the child. She was having fever. In other versions, it's because he wants to see his family. But whatever the reason, he leaves the shelter, makes contact with his family. Shot dead in broad daylight while everyone watched. A young man was allegedly killed by the brothers of his wife in Bulanshire, his UP. In his crime, he dared to fall in love. And I remember when he told me the story, I was disturbed. Sachdev um, advises his couples about a three-year cooling period. Um, he says it would take three years for aggrieved family members to truly forgive and move past a couple's mistake of being together. For three years, you're not supposed to call and say hi to your mom and dad. And the length of the separation period it signifies the extent of Sachdev's distrust, not only of parents, but of their children. I mean, there's not a single decision they've made for themselves in their entire lives before they ran away. They probably haven't been allowed to choose a career path. Um, they've probably been told what to wear, what to do, how to spend time, who to hang out with. So when they come to the shelter, Sachdev tells them they have to learn to live on their own. And a daily schedule is planned out for the couples that stay there. Alarm clocks go off a little after 6 a.m. That's a rule. 
All the couples line up to receive instructions from the group's co-founder, Harsh Malotra. Usually it is the women that cook and the men that clean, and the men um, also run errands. Scrub the bathroom, refill the water tank, walk the dogs, run to the kiosk to get such death more cigarettes. And there are other rules they have to follow, too. No naps because Sachdev feels that, you know, it makes young people lazy. They're not allowed to be inside the room with the door shut at any point in the day. The door must be kept open. One of the rules of the shelter is no sex. And Sachdev justifies this by saying, look, you guys are sleeping multiple couples to a room. Let's be respectful of one another. And that's a big shocker to them. But of course, all of them have sex. I hadn't really put this together, but like they may not have actually literally had a place to have sex before this. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And all the other couples kind of just make adjustments for the for the new the, the new honeymooners that come in. Everybody will turn away and just because uh, everybody understands that they want to be together. But one of the most fascinating aspects about uh, Sachdev is that he has no patience for going young couples. You could hear this in the recordings that Mansi made from the shelter. It's not only these marital relations that Sachdev frowns upon. Even public displays of affection. Like, he will snap at them. He'll be like, get out of here, not in front of my face. I don't want to see this. Speak in proper voices. No baby voices. I can't handle it. At the very least, it seemed kind of like a honeymoon with Grandpa. Sachdev was not quite the defender of love he played on TV. But Surya... Surya says that Sachdev was not the main problem. It was other couples who didn't follow the rules. And at one point, Surya is talking to Lauren, and he's reminiscing about life in the shelter, scrolling through videos and group photos. And then I start asking about, oh, well, what about those people? Where are they now? Do you keep in touch with these people? No. And then when I point to this one couple... He's like, them? No. We're not in touch. Because what Surya was living through in the shelter and his experience of Sachdev as a kind of substitute father, that was only one side of this story. From NPR, that was Rough Translation. It was reported by Lauren Freyer and co-hosted by Mansi Choksi and Gregory Warner, who also writes and edits the series. Their team includes Ariana Lee, Parth Shaw, Alina Torek, and Adelina Lansenis. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. The Happiness Lab is a podcast hosted by psychology professor Lori Santos. She's an expert on the science of happiness, and she teaches at Yale, where her course, Psychology and the Good Life, is the most popular in the university's 300-year history. 
The show has been a hit since its launch in 2019. But the science of happiness isn't just for adults. There's a lot that can benefit kids, too. That's why this fall, the Happiness Lab teamed up with Sesame Street for a special three-episode series on strategies that parents can use to help both their kids and themselves feel happier. Lori Santos is with me now. Welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So how did you end up partnering with Sesame Street to make this series? Yeah, well, it started in the way that many things start, which is with a sort of nepotistic connection at Yale. <laughs> uh, the current CEO of Sesame Street, Steve Youngwood, is a former Yalee. And, and I met him at an event, and I think he was really taken by the work that we've been doing to try to get happiness content out to teens. Um, we just launched a new free course online called The Science of Wellbeing for Teens that's up there and available if, if any teens listening wants to take it. Um, but as we get talking, you know, what he brought up was that, look, th- these are the kinds of strategies strategies that Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit that makes Sesame Street, has been thinking about bringing to kids. And I think more and more parents are realizing that they need strategies to help their kids promote their happiness and flourishing as well. And what are some of the strategies parents and kids can use to increase the amount of happiness in their lives? One of the big ones is to change around your mindset. Um, We often think in terms of what's known as a negativity bias, you know, we're kind of prone to paying attention to the negatives. And in the episode, uh, this is one that I did with Abby Kadabi. Um, Abby is just easily noticing all the kind of bad things that are happening in her world. I'm grumpy. It started when I wanted a banana with my breakfast, but my little brother Rudy ate the last one. And then when I was getting dressed, I couldn't wear my favorite sparkly socks. Do you know why? And, you know, it sounds funny from the perspective of a Sesame Street character, but this is the kind of bias that we have all the time. You know, when we're having a tough day, it can feel like everything is conspiring against us because our brains just lock on to the types of things that are not very good to all the negatives and the hassles in life. Um, But research shows that we can kind of downplay our negativity bias just a bit if we start to intentionally focus on the things that we're grateful for, um, to focus on the blessings in life. Mm -hmm. And are there things that parents and kids do that they might think is making them happy, but really does the opposite? Yeah, one of the strategies we talk about in that respect is uh, kind of the ways that we engage in different self-talk. You know, so self-talk is just, you know, how we talk to ourselves. And often our self-talk is not so nice. I think this is particularly true for parents, right? We sometimes talk to ourselves like a terrible drill instructor. You know, if HR departments could hear, you know, how we talk to ourselves, we'd get fired for like being really mean to ourselves. We'd never talk, you know, to another team member like that. We'd probably never talk to our partner like that. But inside our head, we tell ourselves things like, we suck. Why did you do that again? You're never getting better at this, right? The the self-talk is just kind of really mean. And so one of the strategies we talk about on the episode is this idea that we can really try to make our self-talk a little bit kinder. And I think one of the reasons we don't is that this is a spot where we have an incorrect theory. We assume that that mean self-talk is doing something helpful, right? We think like, well, I'm talking to myself like a drill instructor, but that's how I'm going to get my act together, right? If I just am super mean to myself, then all of a sudden I'll start to do things better. But the research just shows it turns out that's not the case. Um, We get much more traction when we talk to ourselves like a kind friend, when we engage in what's known as self-compassion. And I think that this is a particularly important strategy for kids. There's lots of evidence that kids who use more self-compassionate talk more easily make it through episodes of things like bullying um, or trouble at school when they're struggling with something academically. 
You got to talk with some Sesame Street characters as a part of this series. What was that experience like? Well, it was really quite incredible. Um, you know, I grew up with Big Bird and Grover. Grover was one of my favorite characters. And to be talking with Grover on the episode, you know, was kind of incredible. Hey, have you ever run a podcast? Because I could use the help. Run a podcast? Say no more. I, your cute and helpful friend Grover, will do that running for you. I will run around your podcast studio faster than you can say, see you later. See you later? <laughs> Wait, Grover, come back. So many of us grew up with these Sesame Street characters. They feel like they're friends of ours, right? They're familiar individuals that we know. They allow us to learn with a little bit more nostalgia. And I think when you hear Big Bird using a strategy, when you hear Grover helping me with my self-talk, all of a sudden I think it really starts to make sense. The course you teach at Yale about happiness, as we mentioned, is hugely popular with students. The podcast is a hit as well. What does it say about our society that so many people are seeking a how-to guide on happiness? Yeah, I mean, I think it suggests that we're really going astray when it comes to our own flourishing. Um, I think that so many of the things we see in our culture right now, from things like, you know, hustling all the time, hustle culture, um, to kind of embracing work so deeply, not taking time for rest, having such an individualized society where so much of the happiness research suggests we'd be happier if we were focused on other people. I think there's just a lot of evidence that we're getting it wrong. Um, and, and I think that that is one of the reasons why teaching these strategies earlier and earlier matters, right? Some of the cultural forces might be really leading kids astray. You know, teaching them, for example, oh, focus on your grades, you know, at the expense of making friends and doing kind things for other people. And so I think the fact that so many, you know, college students at an Ivy League institution, adults who've taken my online class, you know, listeners to the Happiness Lab, there's so many people gravitating toward this stuff. I think it really tells us that we're off track and that we might need a course correct. And, and I think we can course correct by learning some of these evidence-based strategies that really can help. Well, you're known as this happiness expert. And like you said, there are highs and lows in everyone's life. And in the show, you've talked in the past about being in a funk or lacking fun in your life. So what do you do when you find yourself feeling that way? Well, it's something that even though I'm a happiness expert, I kind of recognize in myself very often. You know, we're having this conversation really at the beginning of my academic year on campus at Yale, and I've been super busy. And just you asking the question has made me realize, like, huh, I need to make sure I'm getting a little fun in my own life. Um, but I think, yeah, I think one of the things we have to to do is just to recognize where we stand with things. Um, too often the busyness of life means we're just plowing through and we're not even noticing that we're missing out on positive emotion, right? And so we can't build it in unless we notice. But once I'm in situations where I'm noticing that, I often first go towards building in something that the evidence really suggests matter for happiness, which is more social connection. Um, you know, I'm definitely prone to when I'm having a tough day, wanting to like plop down and just do something relaxing like watch Netflix. But these days, I kind of push myself just a bit to like, you know, text a friend, reach out to someone, try to do something nice for someone else. Those things have a little bit more of a startup cost, but ultimately the reward you get from them is much, much bigger. Um, and so those are some of the things that I try to engage in too. Um, but it's worth noting too that, you know, I think sometimes when people hear about the happiness work, they assume that, you know, to succeed in this journey of happiness, you have to be sort of happy all the time. And I think one of the things we talk a lot about on the podcast is that, you know, there are going to be times that aren't fun. There are going to be times that feel a little stressful. There are going to be times that you feel sad or disappointed. And these negative emotions 
we, we sometimes want to avoid them or just kind of shut them off. But the research really suggests that we really want to feel our negative emotions. They're these important signals that we need to pay attention to. So I think we need to avoid this tendency that we sometimes get into of like toxic positivity of like, you know, to, to really have a fulfilling life. It's just like fun, fun, fun all the time. Like a really solid flourishing life involves a lot of negative emotion. The key is that you just need to know how to regulate those emotions and then also kind of how to handle them over time. Dr. Santos, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Lori Santos is a psychology professor at Yale University and the host of The Happiness Lab. You can find it and their Sesame Street series wherever you get your podcasts. Let's listen to some of it now. This is an episode that's not from the Sesame Street series, but in this clip, Lori speaks with another happiness expert named Gretchen Rubin. When a doctor warned Gretchen that she was at risk of losing her eyesight, it sent her on a mission to rekindle her connection to her senses. And so you started by attending to sight. Mm -hmm. Why did you pick sight to start with as a sense to pay attention to more deeply? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we're wired for sight. Sight takes up the biggest part of the real estate in the brain of the senses. And then it's also if you were going to say like, well, what are the kind of kindergarten senses or the Aristotelian senses? They usually are, are named in the same order. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And that makes sense because seeing, as I said, sort of is the, the, most, the most dominant one. And when there's a disagreement among the senses, sight usually triumphs, which is, leads to a lot of interesting effects. Next is hearing. And also seeing and hearing are things that we can do at a distance. Then when things come a little bit closer, then we're going to smelling and then even closer tasting. And smell has a huge influence on what we taste, as unfortunately a lot of people experience when they lost their sense of smell through COVID. Is that You lose your sense of smell, but then it also really affects your sense of taste. So it makes sense that smelling comes before tasting. And then touching is like kind of the oddball because everything else is very neatly organized on the head, um, but touching we do with our whole bodies, you know, it's direct contact. And that's just kind of the order in which they're usually listed to. So it felt like the most sort of expected way that people would see this progression unfolding. And so there are lots of things you could pay attention to with sight. You could look at different shapes, you know, you could kind of mm -hmm. like pay attention to all kinds of different lines and things. But one of the things you started with was color. So tell me a little bit about the Scarlet Project. Oh, well, I went through, even before this, I went through this strange period of being absolutely preoccupied by color. I, I'm so interested in color and just the enormous richness of color. And so I wanted to pick a color to collect. I am not a natural collector, but this is something that people find to be in enormously fun and exciting. And it kind of makes the world more fun because a quest is more fun than a jaunt. So going to look for something is more interesting than just sort of browsing around. So I decided scarlet. I love the word scarlet. I love the color scarlet. I love like that deep, rich red. It's common enough that you find it. It's not so common that like one out of every two things is like, you know, royal blue. And at the same time, I was also doing this thing with my daughter where we would go on these sort of adventures once a week after school. And she was in that teenage phase where you get really into thrift stores. So I thought, well, we'll go and I'll look for something for Scarlet for my collection. And that that will give me something to look for while we're together. So it was a way, it was something that brought us together and made this like this weekly experience more fun. And it's really interesting about color that if you have just any bunch of, you see a lot of art, artworks that are created with this in mind, where if you just take 
a lot of things that are the same color. They just are automatically interesting and kind of harmonious and fascinating. So I thought, well, I'll do that with Scarlett. I'll do that myself. Copy some of these artists that I've seen doing that. And so what were some of your favorite Scarlett things that you found? I mean, they're just they're just like these little objects. Like one, the first thing I got was like a plastic fire truck. I have a tomato. I have a, um, a sort of a rhinestone heart. It's, 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 it's thrift store stuff. So a lot of times it's, that's kind of what's funny about it. It's a little bit random. Um, I love fake food. I've always loved fake food for some reason. I have like a fake little dessert cake and um, a scarlet bird. That's like the kind of thing that you would wire, I guess, into sort of like a Christmas wreath or something like that. But what I love most about this list is that like you're finding things that we might think of as not very interesting in the objective, right? You know, maybe garbage, maybe garbage <laughs> in some ways. But, but what you're doing is you're, yes. you're turning even these mundane, boring, garbagey objects into kind of like their own museum, their own kind of art piece. And that's the power of just noticing color that you found, right? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And it's so fun because it's the kind of thing where you're like, why would anybody even bother to like, sell this or even manufacture it <laughs> like what is the point of this and then you're and, but to me I'm like you know it's like oh, perfect and I get very excited so it really does it enlivens the world and, and lets me see these kind of creative possibilities in it in a way that I never did before so it is it's really exciting in that way another exciting part of paying attention to color was that you started noticing your judgments of color yeah right when you walk through the world and you're not paying attention you know there are oranges and blues and yellows but all of a sudden you start noticing that some are better than others. You know, so talk about collecting these examples of which colors were, you know, pristinely good in their own sense. Yeah, it's interesting about color because are some colors better than other colors? This is like a, a Zen Cohen, I think. But yes, just looking out for color combinations or um, I did this really fun thing where, uh, you know, Pantone has its color of the year, which I'm always, you know, on the edge of my seat to see. One of the exercises that I do is go to the Met every day. And so I'd go to the Metropolitan Museum and, and I would look for a specific color, like if it was the color of the year, or sometimes I would just pick a color at random and just go look for it in paintings and other artworks. And that was a super fun way to look for color because a lot of times it's not where you would expect to see it. Or I could sort of test my knowledge of the Met and being like, okay, I think that I'm going to see this kind of olive green in Impressionism. But did they actually use this olive green? I don't know. Maybe it's more of a medieval color. I'll have to go see. I think the best orange is like a pumpkin orange, like a good sugar pumpkin. Uh -huh. but also the color of Luke Skywalker's X-Wing fighter uniform in the original Star Wars. Yes. It's like he's got this orange helmet. And that's that's like the perfect pristine orange. And so this was like a ridiculous dinner party conversation for me and my friends for like days. Right. And then later they'd text me like saw a great blue, like, you know, or like the orange and the walk sign is terrible. Like the don't walk oh, orange is yeah. awful. Right. <laughs> and so but, yes. but I think this is not this is, you know, often when we think of the benefits that we might get from paying attention to senses like sight, we assume it's internal, right? It's mindful. I'll be less bored. I'll notice these magnificent things. But you were also seeing that this could be really social too. Yes. No. It, and that I love this example of you and your friends, like trading back good, good oranges and bad oranges. Yeah, no, it, it turns out this is a really, really good way to connect with other people. And in fact, a hack that I learned is that if like, let's say you're in a situation where you don't know anybody and you're sort of desperately trying to think of something to say to somebody who you do not know, a really good thing to do is to comment on a sensation that both of you are experiencing at the same time. So what do you think of this music? Or have you tried the food? Or I love the I love the art uh, on the walls of this apartment or whatever it might be, because that is something that's just like you're both experiencing it at the same time. It's in, it's, and it is 
is a really good way to be social. But I did over and over, I found that I was able to connect with other people more deeply through senses. Now, sometimes this was as obvious as, as like, uh, my daughters and I tested each other on smells and that was just sort of silly and fun. Or we made, we made uh, uh, a non-Newtonian fluid out of quicksand. Like that's also super fun. But then I also thought, well, I'll use my sense of taste to connect with my mother-in-law. And we went on a walk on the Lower East Side because she was raised eating traditional Jewish foods. She cooks those herself um, still sometimes. And Lower East Side is famous for having many kind of world-renowned places that sell traditional Jewish food. And let's go on a tour with her and have her tell us. At first, it was just going to be me. But then when my daughters heard about it, they wanted to come too and hear about her memories. And this was something where, you know, I've known my mother-in-law for decades. I, I feel like I know her quite well, but we never really talked through it. And I got a much deeper sense of like what her life was like on a, a just sort of like a very day-to-day -day level. And even of her family members just talking about her grandmother's cooking, what her father would do on Friday nights, things like that. It was a super fun adventure. And it was kind of more active than just me quizzing her about her childhood, which I don't, know that I ever would have done otherwise. But this gave us a reason to reflect on those memories. And it, it was also just very, very memorable as like a thing that we did. There was the day that we went, we all went to the Lower East Side together. And, uh, you know, I'll remember that forever. From Pushkin Industries, that was The Happiness Lab. It's hosted by Yale psychology professor Lori Santos. In that clip, she was speaking with Gretchen Rubin. Finally today, we have a new scripted drama series called Academy. It tells the story of Ava Richards, a scholarship student attending an elite boarding school called Bishop Gray Academy. It's a high-stakes world where popularity and family money matter just as much as grades. But Ava soon learns there are darker things to worry about. Ah, oh, work-study. Unnecessary indignity of scholarship life. You get to live and study among the wealthy, then serve them their afternoon matcha latte. Ava! Ava, hey! Did you see the sunrise? I wasn't up that early. Sorry, have we? Well, you missed out. It was amazing. I'm Charlotte Pham. We're both in Guilford House, and now we're work-study buddies in the cafe. And cafe duty is the best gig you can get because we have a record player and a bunch of old vinyl in here, and we could just, like, listen and chill. <laughs> Actually, it's, like, insanely busy all the time, and all these rich kids are so mean if you mess up. Here, I'll show you how to use the espresso machine. Nice to meet you, too. Okay, so you pack it in this thing, shove it in this thing, and then pull this thing. Make sense? Seems like a lot of things. I knew you'd learn quick. Oh, my God, it's Caden. Who? Uh, Caden Cardoso, senior. His jaw is literally a 90-degree angle, and his dad is a Brazilian cattle magnate, and he has a British accent from international school. Like, shoot me in the face, right? Is that... Good. He comes in every morning before crew practice, and I always get him his oh, tea. Today, it's kind of our thing. Kaden, you want the usual? Just a black tea. Thanks. Alrighty. Oh, by the way, you heading up to the headmaster's brunch tomorrow? Uh, the mandatory headmaster's brunch? Only mandatory if you're a little. Um. <laughs> nah, I'll, I'll be there too. Here's that tea. That'll be three twenty-five. 
Ah, oh, jeez. Uh, do you know what? I've only got three dollars today. Oh my god, totally fine. I'll get the rest. But you owe me. <laughs> Sorry, pulled the wrong thing. That's weird. I just got this voice memo from a random number. It's probably one of those scam things. You gotta watch out for those. I almost sent this guy like three thousand dollars in gift cards one time because he said my grandma needed bail after she was caught smuggling ketamine. Uh, I know it sounds dumb, but he sounded really legit, and my grandma is crazy. <laughs> oh, a customer. I can help you right over Evil there. Richards, your ambition and talent have been noticed. You are meant for something more. And if you're ready to step into your destiny, go to the top of the bell tower at midnight. Tell no one. Two, four, nine. Okay, tall hot plant guy said something about secret societies. This must be him. He's messing with me. Five dollars is your change. Have an awesome day. Are you listening to that random voice memo? What was it? Just some scam. You were right. If they tell you that your mom is in a Canadian prison, don't listen to them. I gotta pee. Can you cover? Yeah, I got you. I know it's not real, but what if it is? There she is. Amber! Oh my god, crazy running into you on the way to the headmaster's brunch. Should we walk together? Why? Just because you want to be seen with me? No, I... I mean, yes, but... Oh my god, I'm kidding, Ava. You should see her face. Sure, let's make an appearance together. I'll introduce you to everyone important. You should definitely check in with Dr. Ravensburg. He runs the National Institute of Health. He writes a great rec letter, and he's, like, obsessed with my mom. And he loves the Hallowell winners, so well, it'll be great for both of us. And then could you intro me to the headmaster? The headmaster? You're going right to the top, aren't you? You're ambitious. He's going to go crazy for you. Come on. White tablecloths, ice sculptures, food that looks like it was made by Gordon Ramsay... And lots and lots of schmoozing. Dr. Wells, have you been lifting over break? Obviously you're invited. That's where we moor my family's yacht. Who's that girl with Amber? She won the Hallowell. I heard she has a book deal in the works. Headmaster Burroughs, hi! Amber, don't you look lovely. Just like your mother. <laughs> Thank you. And this is our new Hallowell winner. Ava Richards. So nice to finally meet you. Your essay, The Death of the American Compromise, certainly left an impression on the selection committee. So what are your plans for the semester? Well, I'm taking some really great classes, and... She's trying out for orchestra. Uh, but there was a problem with her student activities fee. I just didn't realize I... I thought the Hallowell was a full tuition scholarship. Well, there are some additional costs that are required to deliver world-class resources to our students. So let's make sure you get that fee resolved soon, before everything fills up. Our extracurriculars can get a bit competitive. <laughs> no kidding. These kids think Tanya Harding's a role model. <laughs> you kill me, Amber. Now I'm excited to see what you two get up to this semester. Oh, Dr. Gornheim has joined us. 
He's the head of Vanderbilt Medical. If you ladies will excuse me. Oh, God. Ava, I don't mean to completely abandon you, but I have to show face at a table for the top ten. But you know about the list, right? Are you kidding? It's like everyone's dream to get onto the list. Mine included. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't get your hopes up. Everyone on the list has been coming to Bishop Gray since before kindergarten. No transfer has ever made it on. But never say never. <laughs> Catch up with you later. Yeah, for sure. I'm coming, Jonah. The picture can wait like five seconds. They'll let me come to their brunches so I can thank them profusely for letting me attend. But I'm not one of them. I need that money. Ugh, I thought this led to a garden, but it's just some alley. My star child! Hey, Mama. Church has been asking me all about you. We're sending a care basket. Anything you need? Actually, I... Well, I thought my scholarship covered all student fees, but I just found out I still need this extracurricular fee of... Um... It's about 2600 Oh, wow. That's a number. Yeah, I know, but without it, I can't join orchestra or any other activities. Extracurriculars are extra. Do you need to be an orchestra? You're so smart outside of all that. I know it's a lot, but to get into Princeton or Harvard, I need straight A's, and a lot more. Well, it's gonna take some time to find $2,600. Give me a few weeks. It's tough out here right now, but maybe I can talk to the pastor to take up a collection... Everyone is rooting for you so much, and I No, no, no. No, you know what? It's fine, Mom. I don't want to burden you or the church. This is too much. I'll figure it out. Are you sure? I can ask around. Your grandparents? Maybe? No, it's okay. I have to go. I love you, Mom. I love you too, Ava. Ugh. From Wondery and At Will Media, that was a clip from the podcast Academy. It's directed by Anderson Cook, who wrote the show with Sydney Butler. Their team includes Ashley Taylor, Brigham Snow, Amani Leonard, and Brandon Grugel. That's it this week for Podcast Playlist. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, head to our website for links and info on all the podcasts we played today. That's cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast Playlist is Julian Uzielli, Kayla Bies, and Kelsey Cueva, with technical support from Lauda Antonelli and Juliana Romanic. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Take care of yourselves, and we'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.